You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Jazz. Uh, welcome, and uh, good morning again, and I'm so grateful to be with you. Uh, my wife, Sally, and uh, our kiddos uh, weren't able to come with this morning. They're uh, up at uh, worship in, in Del Rapids, South Dakota, at the church I'm on staff at, River Community Church there. Um, and I've uh, just enjoyed so much like-minded fellowship with, uh, with Connection Church and with your um, pastors and staff and, uh, and just general friends here over the years. And so um, it's such a delight to be able to be here and such a privilege to get to talk about um, the very most important things in the universe, about the Word of God and about the Gospel and about what Christ has done. And so um, let's go ahead and turn, if you would, to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. And I'll read this and then we'll pray and then um, we'll see what we can see and what the Lord opens our eyes to see together. This is Paul writing. He says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of My weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon Me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Lord, help us to believe these things. They're so counterintuitive. So against the grain of what we're raised to think, what our society shapes us to think. Father, I pray that You would meet us this morning in our weaknesses. And give us contentment in Jesus. And open our hearts and our eyes to see wonderful things in Your Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In a lot of ways, I feel like we as modern Americans are people that are uh, building our lives around avoiding hardship. Uh, in almost everything we do. Uh, it seems like it's calculated to relieve us from any sort of perceived inconvenience or flaw. We have drugs we call them lifestyle drugs, right? To make you look younger, to rejuvenate your sex drive, to make you lose weight, to make your hair grow back. Uh, I saw on Amazon the other day, um, 
a device called a bagel guillotine, uh, which uh, apparently is designed exclusively to slice bagels perfectly in half. Only $15.49 to save us from the dread scourge of raggedly cut bagels. <laughs> but even if uh, we do sometimes go hog wild, I think, in removing inconveniences from our lives, it isn't wrong to desire an easier go of things, right? Uh, in my view, the alleviation of pain is a really great thing. I'm so grateful for ibuprofen and antibiotics and aloe vera to rub on my sun, sunburn and anesthetic and hemorrhoid cream. And the Lord recognizes, right, that we bear the burdens of life and He even calls us to cast all our cares upon Him. He intends not just our good, but our everlasting best. As one day we'll contemplate His glory, we'll worship Him with ever-increasing joy and pain and frustration and trouble and disaster. Those things belong to the fallen order of the world. The world as it stands, as Paul said, in bondage to decay. And yet, I think every Christian struggles or has struggled with this question of why such things still exist, right? Why does inconvenience still exist? Why does hardship still exist? Why is there still pain in my life, in your life as a believer? Jesus reigns, right? I'm a child of the King, right? So why do I feel like I'm paying taxes to the outdated, overthrown order of death? Why does my dad have cancer? Or you might ask, why am I so lonely? Why does my child suffer arthritis or anxiety or bullying? Why is it so hard? To live a salty, distinctive Christian lifestyle. Why is it so? Uh, why does every step forward feel like I'm taking two steps back? Why is it such a struggle? Why does it seem like the influences of my workplace poo-poo every belief I hold dear? Or why it is if you're really plugged into ministry, right? Why does ministry as a church family sometimes feel like pulling teeth? Everywhere you look, no matter how hard you try, somebody's got a different vision. Somebody's upset and won't have a gracious conversation about it. Somebody's mad about politics. Somebody's complaining there's no community. And so what attitude, this morning as we approach our text, what attitude does God want us to have toward our accumulated, we might summarize them as weaknesses? I think this passage in 2 Corinthians maintains that our weaknesses as Christians, our lowness, our outwardly unimpressive stature, our hardships, our painful trials are in fact the very vehicles God uses to display His grace and power. And the Christian perspective is then counterintuitively that we can actually be content with such things because when we have the least to boast about, when we have nothing going for us in the sight of the world, that's when Christ's power is made complete in us. And through our joyful endurance of our weaknesses, God demonstrates His reign and His shaming of the so-called powers of the world. And so, do you remember how Paul started uh, his first letter to the Corinthian church? It was by reminding them that God's plan to redeem His people on the universe is through something the world considers foolishness. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25, he said that uh, the message of the cross is, uh, is folly to the perishing, but to the, we who believe, it's the power of God. And it seemed like in 1 Corinthians 1, again, God delights to sort of do things the way no one expects Him to, the way the power brokers and the, and the elite of the world don't think He should or don't think He could. And so Paul reminded us there that 
uh, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. But then he went on and he lumps us in with that. <laughs> he lumps believers in with that because in verses 26-31 he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, what did He become to us? Everything. He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So God's redeemed people continue on in the same mold, right? Of God using weak, low, despised things that are outwardly unimpressive, to reveal His glory and His saving power to the universe. God, you get the picture here, God truly hates human boasting. He hates it. And He has purposely arranged the very crux of history to destroy it. And so now at this point in 2 Corinthians, Paul's in the middle of defending his ministry. I know it's kind of weird jumping in to a random chapter in a random book um, like we're doing this morning. So just to set the stage a little bit, Paul's in the middle now in 2 Corinthians when we come to chapter uh, 10. He's in the middle of defending his ministry and his apostolic authority to the Corinthians and refuting some of the opponents that had been there gaining traction with the church. These opponents seem to have been advancing themselves among the Corinthians by boasting in their spiritual heights and their powerful presence and yet pointing out Paul, kind of singling him out as, as sort of weak and foolish. And so in chapter 10, verse 10, Paul says, um, he puts these words in their mouth to sort of summarize their argument. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. And so they've kind of been running Paul under the bus saying, you're going to listen to this, this guy? Like he's nothing. He's, he's, he's a, a low, small, uh, bad speaking, uh, really timid, meek sort of fellow uh, and uh, among other things. And Paul winds up calling these opponents Super apostles. He calls them that in, in chapter 11, verse 5, as a sort of sarcastic nod to how inflated they'd become. They inflated themselves and operated among the church by presenting themselves as wise and high and prestigious and authoritative and somehow deserving of the church's esteem and deference. And in, in chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, You bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. And so because these false uh, super apostles, so to speak, have set the terms of the engagement in, in how they've been kind of count, trying to counteract Paul's influence among the church, boasting about their strength, Paul decides, okay, I'm going to respond in kind. All right, as if to say, you want to talk about pedigree and accomplishments? Let's go ahead and talk. And yet, in these chapters, as he compares himself and his ministry to the super apostles, you see that he's uh, responding in such a way that it actually undercuts the legitimacy of comparing altogether. It's plain that his boasting here is a sort of ironic boasting that shows that the real glory of his ministry, the real source of his spiritual fatherhood for these saints in Corinth, is because of his weaknesses. 
It's because of the very things that his opponents ridicule about him. And so, in, you maybe remember in chapter 11, verses 20 through, 22 through 29, he recounts this just utterly harrowing list of hardships and, and persecutions and struggles that he has endured for the sake of Christ and the gospel. You know, shipwrecked and, uh, and day and night in the open sea, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, without food and cold and exposure, and on and on, etc. and etc. And uh, in, in verse 23, he says of the super apostles, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. And so with a response like this, Paul, I think, is showing how it's not his high, lofty, powerful, wealthy stature that gives him spiritual power and authority among the Corinthians, but rather it's what the world sees as low and weak and foolish or even pathetic. And in verse 1, then Paul says, I must, bo- I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I'm going to go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Again, since the opponents have set the stage, Paul says, all right, I'm going to respond in kind in order to draw these converts back from the false teachers, but it's going to be plain that such boasting won't build them up. It only serves to puff up and possibly inflate the influence of those who claim kind of these private visions as, uh, as something that uh, had, it was the sign of God's favor on them. And he says, I'm going to go on to visions and revelations of the Lord, maybe because the Corinthians were getting accustomed to the sort of ecstatic spiritual experiences and thrilling visions as part and parcel of their practice. Maybe the super apostles produced them or boasted about them um, we know, of course, from 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 13, 14, etc., that, uh, that the sort of ecstatic experiences of the Spirit were a regular kind of commonplace part of their worship together. And so Paul says, let's, all right, let's, let's go on. If we're going to kind of compare, let's, let's go ahead. And so in verses 2, 3, and 4, he says, I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Um, maybe he uses, switches to the third person because it's really obvious that this is Paul. All right. I mean, if he was really intending to describe an actual different person than himself, he wouldn't say, you know, he wouldn't identify himself as that person later on. But uh, so he, why does he switch to the third person? It seems like he's using that to sort of differentiate Paul, the experiencer of the ecstatic, with Paul, the weak, beat up, uh, maligned and humiliated sort of servant of Christ on the other hand. After all, only... Uh, two others in, in the Scriptures, I think, are, are said to have been caught up to heaven. Enoch and Elijah. And so Paul now kind of maybe recognizes he's putting himself in sort of this grand and glorious company. And, um, and so he, he kind of wants to have a, uh, some, at least a convention of uh, humility about this. And so um, he says, I know a man 14 years ago, so it wouldn't have been too much longer after his conversion, where he was caught up, it says, to the third heaven. Maybe he's, and you maybe read that and think, what on earth is the third heaven? And uh, uh, reading the commentaries, they, they don't really seem to have a whole lot of great ideas either, but uh, he's maybe referencing a popular cosmology. You see in some of the Jewish writing of the day that they maybe thought of a, the, the heaven as having sort of three or even seven tiers. Uh, Solomon in 1 Kings 8.27 talks about uh, heaven and the heaven of heavens. Um, but it could just be a, a way of sort of describing the superlative experience of heaven. The, the third heaven sort of being uh, heaven 
um, the, the very, the very um, you know, the purest sort of experience and expression of it. And Paul repeats, <clears throat> maybe you caught this, repeats twice that he doesn't know if he was in the body or out of the body when this happened. Only God knows. He, he repeats that phrase twice. It's kind of, kind of odd. Uh, maybe to emphasize is just sort of total non-comprehension of how, how this happened, what exactly went on, uh, where it, you know, what the mechanics of it were. And he says, while I was there, I, <clears throat> I heard things which cannot be told, which man cannot utter, may not utter. He's apparently prohibited even from speaking about these things. They're too, uh, too sacred, too mysterious, too glorious, uh, even for him to just sort of blab about willy-nilly here on earth. Now, surely to be taken up into paradise, as he says, you'd think that would maybe be a trump card for Paul in his sort of count, in his opposition to the, the super apostles in terms of spiritual attainments, right? Oh yeah? Oh yeah, you guys have you guys have you know had had experiences with the Spirit? Well I was caught up to the third heaven. Um, you know, putting him in the same league as Enoch and Elijah. And yet, we notice that instead of emphasizing this, instead of milking it, it's instead of you know, sort of breathlessly relaying all the gaudy details and giving us a blow-by-blow of his heaven tourism, right? Paul quickly moves to highlight his weakness. He says, verse 5, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Verse 6, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So he says, I'm, I could I could milk this, I could you know, really hold this up as, as my trump card, but rather, I don't want people to think too highly of me. And so, oh, thank you. And so, he says, verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Uh, and here's kind of you know, what we all like, like to think about and speculate about when it comes to this passage. This thorn in the flesh that Paul receives <clears throat> that's sent to him as a messenger or as an angel of Satan to harass him or um, that word harass also means just to beat or to, to smite in the face. Uh, and so this isn't, the imagery isn't, uh, you know, maybe you think of a thorn in the flesh and you think of a splinter, a, a sliver. That's what I think of, right? And if you're like me, you're a big baby and you hate slivers. I can't stand them. Uh, if I get a sliver or a splinter in my, in my flesh somewhere, I, like, it's just like, not only is it in my flesh, it's in my mind. I can't stop thinking about it. I have to dig that thing out uh, before, you know, I, I, I don't know. There's just something weird about that. And so I, I kind of get the imagery, and yet a, you think of a splinter or a thorn. Okay, yeah, that's, that's irksome, right? That maybe draws a little blood, um, but maybe we can get over it. Um, and yet, <clears throat> Paul, the way Paul describe it, describes it, it's, it's something that is, is genuinely painful. Something that genuinely prevents or hinders him from doing what he wants to do. So uh, a, f- a couple years ago now, I think it was, I was walking in our basement uh, barefoot on our carpeted floor, and uh, I stepped on a sewing needle. Uh, not, not, a, not a little one, a, a big one. A big sewing needle. Blunt end first. <laughs> and it went in deep. 
Like, it, was, it was awful. I cringe even now just thinking about it. And my wife, my dear wife, had to get a pliers and, and, and pull it from my foot. Uh, it, was, it was ghastly. Uh, uh, <laughs> like, what do you do when there's a sewing needle sticking out of your foot, right? Like, you, you don't do anything. You, you can't walk anywhere. You can't, uh, I mean, it's, it has to be dealt with. It has to, you know, and if it's not dealt with, it's going to be uh, an incredible hindrance to whatever you're, whatever you're trying to do. And Paul seems to be describing this thorn in the flesh. It also could mean a, a stake, a sharpened stake of some kind. He means something that is is uh, genuinely stopping him or, or preventing him from uh, doing all the ministry things that he wants to do. He describes it, like I said, as a messenger or an angel of Satan. Now, of course, Satan has no power but that which is allowed by God. That's the picture we get from this text, right? He is allowed to harass, to beat, to hinder Paul through this thorn in the flesh. And yet, plainly, these bad things, genuinely bad things, satanic things, are still under the sovereignty and purposes of God. Because he says twice, this thorn in the flesh is given to him to keep him from becoming conceited. And so that even this terrible thing from the father of lies himself, even that has to serve the sovereign purpose of God for Paul's best. And we often want to get you know, swept up in the speculation. What was the thorn? I mean, it must have been obvious, right? I mean, the people that he was writing to must have known what it was. Everyone who saw Paul probably immediately understood this is, this is something that um, you know, works against his uh, desires for, for ministry and life. Uh, and so that's led some people to think perhaps it's you know, like a spiritual harassment some sort of uh, temptation or demonic oppression or, or something like that. <clears throat> we just don't really have a whole lot of details. Others have, have thought of it as, as, as just his sustained, prolonged, continuous persecution by opponents. He's, everywhere he goes, he's sort of met by this resistance. Uh, lots of people have speculated perhaps a mental or physical ailment like eye trouble or a fever or stammering speech or perhaps epilepsy. Um, and in fact, you know, the thorn in the flesh does seem to kind of uh, suggest something physical. And yet, at the same time, we can look at that list of all the accumulated sufferings Paul went through for the gospel and recognize this guy had to have some physical fortitude, right? I mean, he's not, uh, he, he must have been, uh, had enough uh, constitution and robust health to go through the travels and rigors of his life and ministry and not just fall over dead. And so, um, it, it's kind of a hard problem. A lot of people have pointed to Galatians 4.15 and Galatians 6.11 as perhaps something with his eyes. He says to the Galatians, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Or Galatians 6.11, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. And so, I suppose if I had to you know, land, land somewhere, which thankfully we don't have to, but <laughs> maybe something, something to do with his eyesight was, was afflicting him. But we can really only speculate. What is plain and clear is that this is something that uh, was genuinely satanic resistance to his continuing on in his life and ministry. It afflicted Paul greatly. Afflicted him, afflicted him incredibly greatly. He says in verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Can you imagine what Paul pleading with the Lord 
to heal him or remove this affliction from him, what it looked like. Three times I pleaded with him that it should leave me. But what was the answer to his pleading? The answer to his prayers was no. Why? Because, he says, God said to me, Paul says, God gave me the answer, no, and he explained why. He said, no, because, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God said no because God's grace would be enough for Paul. And grace isn't just the unearned favor of God poured out in salvation, as we rightly, joyfully proclaim, but also a continuing empowerment for faithful Christian life. God's power, he says, is made perfect in weakness. And I might say even that this is a sort of restatement of the whole theme of the New Testament, that Christ conquers sin and death and redeems the world through His voluntary sacrificial death on the cross. And just as it was in Christ's work of redemption, so it was in Paul's life. God subverts the lowness, the poverty, the need, the affliction, the dying. Paul said, I die every day. And God uses it then for His glory and purposes. And so, Paul says, astonishingly in verse 9, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. He's going to boast all the more gladly about the very things the super apostle accusers have pointed out about him and have been trying to run him down about. It's not that he enjoys his weaknesses per se. He's not some Spartan, right? He's not a masochist. Oh, I like this, right? He's not saying he likes the affliction. He likes the persecution. He derives some sort of weird, twisted pleasure from it. No, but rather... He rejoices that God's power dwells in or rests upon him in such weaknesses. The thorn is still bad. The thorn is still satanic. And yet Paul, as he recognizes his life under the sovereign goodness of God, can say, yes, God, I am content with this. Because Christ's power, Christ's glory is then displayed through me as I continue on. Paul says, as I, am, as I faithfully press on despite these things, it becomes plain it's only the power of God that enables me to do this. And when that's plain, God gets the glory. right? God gets the, God gets the, um, the praise. And, and there's no grounds for boasting anymore. Paul can't legitimately boast anymore about anything in him. It's plainly and only the power of Christ working through him. And so human boasting is brought to nothing. And Paul's joy in contentment in Christ is maximized. Which then leads him to kind of exult in this glorious, climactic, astonishing 10th verse. For the sake of Christ then. And it's so hard too. Such a, such a hard thing to hear. But for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. One of the commentators on this passage, I love that. You know, pastors don't normally quote commentators. <laughs> you ever notice that? Now, most commentators are, kind of have a dry, scholastic kind of approach to the text. But I loved this quote in one of the commentators. 
commentators don't usually talk like this, but it's so good. It said, times come in our lives when we must learn to accept what is inescapable and then listen for what God is saying to us through it. We might find that we are mistaken about what we think is best for us and for God's work. And I don't think it's necessarily that every Christian, you and I this morning, have our own personal thorn in the flesh. You know, like people speculate, does everybody have their own guardian angel? <laughs> you know, do it, does everybody get their own sort of thorn in the flesh? I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the way it is and how Paul intends us to take this. And yet, there are, right, many cases in our lives where our difficulties, our weaknesses, even disasters and calamities are in fact allowed and intended by God as vehicles for the display of His sustaining grace and power. Maybe they're to humble us, right? Maybe they're to keep our pride in check, as was the case for Paul. Maybe they're there to keep us from becoming enamored with money. Love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Maybe they're there to wean us off of earthly power or a fixation on uh, something that doesn't truly matter or any of a thousand other reasons. But what I think this passage then calls me to, it calls you to, is a change of attitude and perspective toward the hard, painful, persistent trials of our lives. Yes, you and I may ask and plead with the Lord to take them away. And yes, the Lord may sometimes do so. We may even beg for deliverance from them, as Paul did. And the Lord may do so, and it will be spectacular when He does. And we will glorify and praise Him, won't we, when there's incredible healing, when there's incredible deliverance. God does cause that bliss of healing and safety and relief of sudden salvation to kind of overflow and gratitude to Him. But is it not also true that the Lord intends to glorify Himself not by the rescue of us from every trial, but by our joyful, grace-empowered perseverance through those. And so I think this passage is calling us to reshape our attitude to this very countercultural, very humanly difficult kind of perspective. That we are content with weaknesses. Content with insults. Content with hardships. Content with persecutions and content with calamities. Content. I have to tell you, I don't like that word here. That is a hard word to see here in verse 10. But what a difference. What a life-changing word. Are you content? Are you and I content to have Christ and His power when everything else in our lives is in tatters and flames? Are you and I content to have Christ and to persevere in life and our Christian calling when we've prayed and prayed and prayed for disease to be cured and the answer is no? Are you and I content with insults and persecutions to rejoice, to be considered worthy to suffer for Christ's sake? Are you and I content even with calamities to recognize and accept that <clears throat> holding our faith, holding our witness through unexpected disasters is one of the ways Christ's resurrection power works in us and is manifested in us. Friends, let's change our perspective. Instead of being content when all our pain and trials are alleviated, when our bagels are sliced 
perfectly down the middle, right? Instead of only being content then, let's foster contentment if we just have the sustaining grace and power of God. One of the most remarkable little notes I've ever read is from uh, Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher theologian of the 18th century who died at age 55 after taking a smallpox vaccination to sort of try to show to his, the, the people in his ministry and in his, the circles of influence that it was a good thing to do. And he wound up developing complications from it. Died at age 55. And this is what Sarah Edwards, Jonathan's wife, wrote to their daughter after he passed. Listen to the, listen to the heartbreak, but also the contentment. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had Him so long. But my God lives and He has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God. And there I am and love to be. Your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. I know some of you are maybe thinking, that's all fine and dandy for you to say, Ryan, but have you ever suffered a day in your life? You have no idea what thorns are stuck in my flesh. And it's everything I can do to just not give up. And you're right. I don't know. I can only imagine the kind of pain that people in this room carry with them. And all I can say is that we have it on the very best and most certain authority in the world, the Holy Spirit, that what this passage is saying is true. It is the very Word of God that if you've put your faith in Christ, God's power rests on you in your weakness. And God has demonstrated it's true. With the Apostle Paul, and even more, he's demonstrated it's true through his own Son, Jesus Christ. How did Jesus conquer sin and death? How is Jesus lifted up and exalted to the Father's right hand? How is Jesus now enthroned far above every power and dominion and authority? How has Jesus secured for his people an eternal redemption? It's through humiliation. Being born as a pitiful human being. It was through the insults and reviling and hatred of His own people. It was through His refusal to call ten legions of angels to slaughter His accusers. It was through His silent endurance of the injustice and violence of the state. It was through His death on the cross. Even when it seemed like heaven itself had turned its back on the Son of God, when Jesus was weak, then He was strong. Because God's power rested on Him and was completed through His atoning death and resurrection from the dead. And so yeah, I don't know. I can't identify fully with your pain. But I can say that Jesus has gone before us and He promises to be with us and never forsake us. And I'm telling you, the alternative this morning to contentment with your earthly weaknesses, the alternative to that is to struggle with doubt and despair, and bitterness, and regret. 
The alternative is to try to take matters into our own hands and conquer the world by force or by wealth or by lording it over others or by success, either real or faked, to use all the vehicles of the super apostles, to use all the vehicles of the world, what the world holds important and dear, and, and try to use those things to make it through life. But at the end of all things, it will be universally made plain to every person and everything that God chose what is weak, foolish, unimpressive, and small. He chose those things to shame the wise and the strong of the world. In the sight of all these things, these bodily, weak, unimpressive, pathetic, nagging, irritating, pain-causing trials, because in the sight of all those things, the power of Christ rests on us, it shines forth. And He uses and He blesses and He works through those who are low and despised and ill and defective in the sight of the world. When was Paul strong? When was Paul, probably the greatest Christian to ever follow Christ, (laughs) when was he truly strong? Paul was truly strong when he was weak. When are you and I strong? Not when we're in great physical condition. Not when we have a perfect family or a perfect job or a perfect country or a pleasant retirement. When are we truly strong? When we're weak. And so perhaps the greatest testimony of your life at the end when you come to that day of your death, perhaps your greatest testimony won't be God delivered me from cancer. God took away my depression. God gave me a child. God shut the mouths of my reviling co-workers. Maybe your greatest testimony will be God's faithful power kept me believing. God's power kept me joyful through many dangerous toils and snares. And now His grace has led me home. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would bless these dear saints. And bless me. Oh God, this is so hard. I don't want to be content, Lord, with the trials of my life. I don't want to do them anymore. I'm sure there are many, many people thinking the same. Oh God, bless us and help us. Help us to see with the same sort of eyes that Paul saw that all our boasting is brought to nothing in the sight of the Gospel, in the sight of what Jesus has done. That all our weakness, Lord, You meet us there and You give us grace to persevere and You give us strength to continue on in ministry and in life. And that's a good place to be. Oh Lord, make us content to have Jesus. In His name I pray. Amen.